0: right now our friends at princeton university press are having a remarkable site-wide sale you can get 50 percent off books including ebooks and audiobooks with the code 50 f-i-f-t-y at checkout until may 31 you can save some real money on
2: princeton university press books i encourage you to go there and check it out welcome to
0: the new books network
2: hello This is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. History X Silo seeks to do something new in the world of podcasts. It asks historians to look outside of their expertise silos and to engage the scholarship of other historians who work in different geographical or chronological areas. This is perhaps easier said than done historical expertise is hard-earned, often over many years. With historical training comes a healthy amount of intellectual humility. We do not tread on unfamiliar ground, we quickly learn. Yet the editors at Critica believe there is something valuable to be gained by encouraging historians to step beyond their comfort zones. We envision History X Silo as a place where historians can broaden and compare perspectives within the historical field and to reach beyond it to a broader public that is hungry for informed analysis. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, for our inaugural episode of History X Silo, we have arranged a conversation between a historian who has written about the collapse of the Russian Empire in World War I, and a historian who has chronicled the fate of the autonomous city of Fiume, present day Rijeka in Croatia, in the aftermath of World War I and the collapse of the Habsburg Empire. In his book, Imperial Apocalypse, The Great War and the Destruction of the Russian Empire, Joshua Sanborn argues that World War I put in motion a process of decolonization in the western borderlands of the Russian Empire. Sanborn's cardinal achievement lies in reversing a long-standing causal relationship in the historiography on Russia in World War I. Movements for national self-determination in the western borderlands took advantage of state collapse and social disaster to engage in state building. Crucially, in Sanborn's narrative, nationalist movements were not the cause of state collapse. Those lay elsewhere in Sanborn's view, particularly in misguided state policies and in the behaviors of czarist troops. Whereas Sanborn's book forces a reconsideration of the relationship between movements for national self-determination and the empire they sought distance from, Dominique Kirchner-Ryle asks readers to reconsider the centrality of nationalism as a motivating force in the post-war years. In the Fumay Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire, Ryle presents, on first glance, what would appear to be a highly unsuitable locale for such analysis: the free state of Fuma famously occupied by Gabriella D'Annunzio's proto-fascist legionary force in 1919 and 1920. For nationalists like D'Annunzio, Fiume's autonomy was a painful symbol of Italy's so-called mutilated victory in World War I. Yet Ryle shows that the reality of Fiume was far more complex and far less beholden to nationalist grievance. The city's elite was deeply shaped by memories of a layered system of sovereignty split between Vienna, Budapest, and local autonomy. In the post-war years, Fiume's elites were not eager to forsake the city's multi-ethnic and polyglot diversity for the demands of a homogenizing nation state. Let me introduce our participants. Joshua Sanborn is the Roth Professor of History at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. In addition to Imperial Apocalypse, he is the author of Drafting the Russian Nation and the co-author of Gender, Sex, and the Shaping of Modern Europe. Sanborn is presently at work on a new book project titled Bad Romance, Spies, Scientists, and Cold War Adventures. Dominique Kirchner Ryle is professor of history at the University of Miami. In addition to the Fiume crisis, she is the author of Nationalists Who Feared the Nation, Adriatic Multinationalism in Dalmatia, Trieste, and Venice. Kirchner Ryle is presently at work on a new book project titled The Habsburg Mayor of New York, Fiorella LaGuardia. May their conversation about topics familiar and unfamiliar inspire all of us us to broaden our horizons by looking beyond our intellectual silos. Dominique, I turn the conversation over to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and this is really fun. Uh, We all who are professors at institutions have spent our lives talking to people outside our fields. In graduate school, we all were in cohorts that were not just studying the same thing. And I think we all learned interdisciplinarily, not just outside of the discipline of history, but also certain geographies and chronologies. And all of us, if we were lucky enough to get hired, and Josh and I were lucky, um, are in departments where we're the only ones to do what we do. So, Though this might sound like something that never happens, in many ways, our entire profession is built on being able to talk and learn together um, outside of our specialty. So I love this idea. Uh, I also am so happy I'm with Josh because I'm his stalker. <laughs> I met him at a conference this summer, and I'm like, "Ah, I know your book." <laughs> so being asked to talk about this book is is exciting for me, and it's also just it's unfair. I wrote a book about 50,000 people. (laughs) This is a book about over 160 million people. (laughs) I wrote a book about maybe three years. This book in many ways is about 15 years. Uh, So the difference in scope uh, of the two books is, 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 you know, boggles the mind. But I do think that there are things that are very common. And and, and Stephen, I think you just emphasized the major one, which is what is the uh, importance of nationalism and trying to understand the dissolution or the collapse or the breakdown or the breaking of empire. And maybe we can talk about that in a second. But in rereading the book this week, I kept on stumbling over the word colonial, and uh, decolonization. And I know that's intentional, um, but I was trying to think about why it's such a hard word for me as someone who studies Central Europe. I understand, I think, and Josh, I'm just asking you to to expound on this. I I, I understand how you are defining colonial. And you're kind of using colonial and, and imperial interchangeably. And you, you discuss at one point that it's about the subjugation of peoples and places, power structures of inequality, where where this where the structure of 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 the of having the czar on top and the and the rest of the world on the bottom um, creates a, a situation that is upended with increased. Um, power structures, struggles, and experiences that happen outside of the centralized state, hence decolonizing and colonizing. If someone used those words for the Habsburg Empire, I would consider them nationalists. I would consider using the word colonial and decolonizing as, in some ways, pushing the, the... (laughs) <laughs> the cohabitation with empire as something foreign, as something imposed, as not participatory. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that the Habsburg and the, and the Romanov empires were different, but, but I, I'm really wondering um, about that. And I was also wondering about this thing about Russia and the rest. If I can't think of any part of the Habsburg Empire that I would call Austria and it would mean something or Hungary and it would mean something less difficult than, than empire. Uh, so I was wondering also how you're dealing with borderlands and and core and uh, and and those things and, and more just to figure out what these terms give us in using them or not using them.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's been a question that I've been thinking about for a long time, Uh, even as this book was in preparation, and I was giving lectures talks at places about it. um, And I was insisting on this colonial uh, and uh, terminology, but especially on the notion of decolonization. I got a lot of pushback, Uh, a lot of people uh, had some of the same reservations that that you did, and and that extended into reviewers of the book. Uh, which well, I think that criticism is probably the most the most common criticism uh, of the book, and I think it points to to two things. Uh, one of which is my fault, and one of which I think was a uh, fault of the field. So uh, I'll start. I think with with what my fault was, which was. To, I made a conscious decision to not do a deeply theoretical introduction in which I talked about questions about what I mean about decolonization and colonization, about the differences between, you know, different sorts of empires. I I, um, I, I dealt with that red, relatively briefly. I dealt with it more extensively in a, in a different article I did in a in a collected volume, which of course, you know, gets less read than 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 the book than the book does um and uh and so that was you know that was um and and the reason i i very consciously did it was that i was aiming for a broader audience and i thought that maybe the first step that we took together maybe ought not to be a super heavy theoretical examination of these terms of decolonization and empire and, and and what readers really needed was an explanation of of what the Russian empire was, where it was, what, what the peoples were, what their recent histories had been. So it was a conscious decision. Um, and, um, but again, that 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 was certainly my fault not to have explored that more deeply at some point in the book. But I also think, it, and it was a problem of of the field, and not just the field of Russian East European history, because sub, a lot of the pushback I got was from non non Russianists. So I'd go and give talks, and folks that folks on African history or Asian history would also say, "Look, what you're talking about is um, is, is not colonialism and decolonization." And uh, the point I tried to make was that. Uh, the British Empire, let's say, had a wide variety of ways of uh, of dealing with empire, ranging from settler colonialism to indirect rule to a whole series of things. But when we talked about the end of the British Empire, people talked about, de- you know, about decolonization, right? Same thing with the French Empire, right? So so this was, um, it was being attached to a particular moment, the post-World War II moment. Um, and, um, and so that was one thing. The second more substantive one was of course, that there was a much greater um, uh, focus on race uh, in the post-World War II period, both as sort of a means of domination, but also as a means of resistance. And so there are definitely differences between decolonization in the post-World War II and the post-World War I era. But my attempt to try to uh, to try to recover these words uh, or recover the word in particular of decolonization for for the Russian Empire was an attempt to put that put this experience into the larger process of empire and, and, and imperial dissolution over the course of the 20th century and and as, you know, Steve mentioned in his, in his summary, like one of the key things that one finds when one reads about decolonization in Africa and Asia is the real importance of states and, uh, and the importance of, of state collapse to those processes. Um, And then a number of things that follow from it. And, you know, I won't, go into that, you know, now, maybe we can talk about it more later, but when we think about dynamics of violence, when we think about dynamics of political entrepreneurship, when we think about the rebuilding of new multi-ethnic states in the regions that used to be empires, there's actually a lot of commonality with what's happening in, in, um, in the Russian empire and and beyond. And like these other empires, the Russian empire also had different modes of imperial control. If we look, you know, I start my chapter on revolution in Central Asia and, you know, colonialism in Central Asia looked different than, uh, than Russian imperial rule in Ukraine. And so so all of those things were things. And so that would always be my my retort to people would be to say, well, if we call what happens to Britain and France decolonization, despite this wide variety of of ways that people are, are, are existing there, why shouldn't we um, think about Russia in that way? And I'm wondering, whether, as you know, as, as we all know, there's been a big surge in talks of sort of decolonizing the field uh, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. Um, and, you know, and so this is a word that is now sort of, um, being talked, talked about more, uh, and talked about more in areas that frankly, I was, I was, I was criticized for calling sort of, uh, colonial and using the term decolonization for when this book came out eight years ago. And, um, and as you suggest, some of this might be classed as national or nationalist. Absolutely, it is. But I, I do think there are broader things that that we might consider in that um, in, in that relationship. So, um, you know, I, I you know I, I still feel good about using that term decolonization, um, uh, uh, despite the fact that you know that it has caused I think some um, some 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 scholarly um, some scholarly pushback.
1: I think that I mean so much of the history of the habsburg empire is used in the making of the the successor states right as a as a way of blaming you know you need to have a good like birth story <laughs> you know we got out of the prison of empire and now and so that that image of colony I think was which was used, and that is a word that was used at the time, um, and so it doesn't. It, it it But it was it was a very weaponized word, and so I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I can understand why uh, someone working on uh, Congo would have a problem with us talking about decolonization. But but uh, but but I, in the Habsburg in the Habsburg posts post uh, Habsburg world, it was a way to wipe one's hands of responsibility of what happened everything before 1918 and so i was wondering is this also something that you see if you if your book had continued even further um, is this something that gives the soviet state um you know separates it out even though so much of the state is actually the same geography as the empire
0: yeah, I, I, and obviously this has been a question that has consumed um, historians of the early Soviet Union for for a long time. This question of the relationship between empire and nation in, in the Soviet Union has been a pretty has been a pretty vibrant field for, yeah, for well, <laughs> ever since sort of the twenties, and but but especially uh, from from the nineties forward. And um, you know, it's. Uh, we don't see the same kind of rhetoric right um we, you know, and it's i mean we do see some of this sort of prison of nations rhetoric uh, emerging in emigrate communities of course um and and in you know in a lot of these nationalist diaspora communities you know this this is this is the rhetoric that's um that's in play but because soviet nationalities policy is um is so different you know from from the states around it and the successor states around it and you know the fact that you know primarily because they have come to power, as I try to point out in the book, on an explicitly anti-imperial stance, right? That one of the things that separates the Bolsheviks from its competitors in 1917 is how aggressively anti-imperial they are, how much they um, insist not only on slogans of sort of rights to national self-determination and, and everything else, but really sort of posing World War One as an imperial war, um resonated with a lot of soldiers in, in 1917 and led them to the conclusion that they should fight a defensive, a defensive war, but not, not seek to, you know, you know, not, not seek to be aggressive. So, so that, you know, that experience is that it, it, within the Russian empire is, is really different as a result. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think we really get um, <clears throat> that, you know. Y- Outside of outside of these emigrate communities, the kinds of discussions just look a lot different in the 1920s in in, in the Soviet Union, and this is what I'm trying to suggest. Although there, you know, the similarities that are there tend to be sort of state focused. Uh, you know, I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around this whole question. But you know, one of the things I sort of suggest, without following up at the end of the book, is that the Soviet Union is um, is, in, is obviously a revolutionary state, but it's also a post-colonial state, and um, and what post-colonialism might mean in that um, condition, but in that circumstance, might mean things like like you know how do we deal with regional politics how do we deal with ethnic questions what about the collapsed economy as a result of the of the state what about these issues of large numbers of violent men's with men with weapons like there's a series of things that um that that define these 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 post colonial moments that you know that are you know that are that are kind of important and i guess i'd like to sort of turn it back to um to some thoughts on your book because you know at first glance i think people might might think that our books are actually Talking about very different things. That I'm talking about decolonization, and, and one of the main sort of argumentative lines in your book is about the the legacy of or the continued importance of empire uh, in the way that people are thinking about um, um, about their lives. Um, but I think actually there are more, me- maybe methodologically, our, our conclusions might be different. But methodologically, I think there's a lot of similarities in that we're we're looking less at political rhetoric and more at political practices and social experiences to try to define kind of what's going on. And and obviously, what's happening in Fiume, um is um, is 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 really different. So whereas I'm gonna where I look at things like you know institutions of violence and coercion in terms of armed forces, militias, gangs you know um you take deeper dives into things like state control of currency citizenship and even like the urban visual tableau like where people are flying flags and sort of flag politics uh in in the midst of this crisis too um the other you know big major difference is the territory we're studying and you mentioned this before too and because this plays into the sort of the factor of social experience um and i guess i would just gloss this as saying that you know uh Lemberg was not Fiume, Lviv was not Rijeka. Um, One of these cities was taken and retaken several times by large contingents of of armed men, and the other wasn't, really. Um, And one of these cities was a major international port, uh, and and, and the other wasn't. So I guess the question I, I would have for you, sort of as our books, enter into conversation with one another is which do you of these factors do you think is leads to the diverging outcomes of, of our arguments? Is it more the different state institutions we study or the different territories we study?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, when I was reading your book again, I was like, maybe Fiume is the Finland of r- the Russian <laughs> empire. I mean, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> the, the degree of autonomy is so important for tr- seeing this, uh, the, how they are um why would they want to keep an imperial system so alive is because of how much autonomy they already had and uh and and then thinking about going into a bigger state was exciting because of what big states mean in terms of infrastructures and international uh voice but big states giving up autonomy doesn't sound fun. So they're just trying to get their, eat, get their cake and eat it too. And I, I'm wondering how much that's a Finland story. But <laughs> um, I, I think when I was rereading your book, I could see where would Fiume have experienced, been part of your story. And I was thinking about the refugees. So because it's a port town, it is also a rail hub. Refugees are moving through not to get to the town, but moving through the town, uh, POWs. um, Also, a lot, since Fiume was part of the Habsburg Empire, um, a lot of its soldiers were on the Eastern Front. They were in Galicia. They were taken prisoner. They were in those forced work battalions that you describe. They were sent to Italy because of nationalist manipulations of exactly what you describe in your book. So in some ways, Fiume is part of your book in a strange way. Uh, It it is a hospital site. Uh, It is a site where all these doctors and nurses that you describe in your book are all of a sudden, more and more personnel are about the wounded. A lot of the battles in uh, Macedonia and in the Southern Balkans, uh, 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 the wounded are taken to Fiume. In some ways, it it is a very similar story, except for the violence, right? So it is not a bloodland. And what it means to study a bloodland and not to study a bloodland using Snyder's terminology, um, it it means a lot. (laughs) It, It means a lot where... Uh, local populations t- haven't seen their houses burned down by the soldiers that just twenty minutes ago were eating the potatoes. You know, uh, using images from your book, um, the the sense of distrust that uh, that is uh, that is created around authority and systems when you go year after year of changing authorities that all of them doing similar things, whether it's the Germans or the Russian state, the German state or the Russian state or the Austrian state, you, I don't know. I think that that really matters. And a town like Fiume is, is lucky. Um, You know, they were bombed twice, but, they were bombed by airplanes that barely knew how to drop a bomb yet. And it only actually hit the outskirts. A couple of houses got knocked down. I mean, I'm not saying that that's not dramatic, but, but compared to what's going on, on the real front lines, it's, it's, it's incomparable. Um, but I also think, and this is, uh, I think the history of the war and the post-war has, has been about violence um, and, and there's been exceptions that have studied Homefront and and what the experience of Homefront meant. And so for me, it was really important to, to, to write a book that was about how important uh, the dissolution of empire was, not just because of the virus of violence. Um, uh, but that's not because I don't think it's incredibly important. It's just I feel that work around militias and, you know, you're, as you talk, the death armies. <laughs> and this is a huge thing in Italian history, too, the Aditi, the shock shark troops. So I feel like um, there's a, been a disproportionate interest in Italian and Habsburg studies Around around these violent experiences, if you consider how much of the of the territory was not a bloodland, right? So, I, I, when what rereading your book, I was just struck by, yeah, this is the front, <laughs> and so much of of Austria Hungary wasn't, and Italy's north was, but so much of Italy wasn't. So, telling those histories as front histories is part of the story, but not the whole story.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing this allows, and yeah, I think you know that's um, it really is a distinct difference, and 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 you're absolutely right that historians have been um, often sort of drawn to these major violent conflicts, whether it's war, revolution, civil war, those sorts of things, and 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 these kinds of stories that you're telling in this in in this book are are, are told less often, and they're they're really fascinating, and and um, you know I, I'm hoping you, you can sort of Take us back to your sort of opening um, story here. So sort of December 1920, which I thought was a terrific way to open the book. Very surprising that you have, um, you know, Italian ships uh, attacking an Italian town that wants to become a ta- for wanting to become Italian. Right. So like it, it sets up the problems that you're that you're discussing in a really important way. And I'm I'm hoping maybe you can talk some about the question of the international Aspects of, of of the fumate crisis. It struck me how very different the international aspects were, in, in terms of the Russian Empire, where the Treaty of where, where the uh, negotiations negotiations around Brest-Litovsk were important, uh, and where you know um, you know obviously a foreign intervention and you have Germany playing a large role all the way through 1918, as distinct from the kinds of um, kinds of questions that are now emerging in the in the post-war period around Wilson and around creating this this order because our books really are are, are a little bit separate temporally my I, I basically end in 1918 and I uh, and 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 then you like to and then look forward and then you're starting sort of at that point but also constantly looking back so I think they overlap but but the cores of our books are sort of sequential rather than simultaneous
1: yeah but they're not so you know you have this point in your book where you're like you, there's nothing more disrespectful to to the Eastern Front than using November 11th as as as, as the centennial of the end of World War One. You know, uh, uh, World War One didn't end uh, officially yet when it did end in Fiume. The the empire just dissolved before even uh, the peace treaties were signed. So or even armistice began. So so that the Hungarian kingdom left Fiume before November 11th. Uh, so, and that, uh, the, this, the, the Christmas war, the war of the, the, the Christmas of blood that you just described before this, so, this absurd attack by the Italian kingdom on the, on the town of Fiume to force it to stop calling itself part of Italy was so that the peace treaty between the Kingdom of Italy and the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes could be finalized. They still don't have a peace treaty uh, until until late 1920, um, even though we have a peace treaty for Germany already. So you know the the, the this thing about the chronology of the the war. Happening? When does it start? In Italy, it starts later. You know, it, it, there's no start date and there's no end date. Every part of the world war has a different has a different configuration of that. And what happens uh, with the Fiume story internationally is these are these people are are taking advantage of media and they're taking advantage of imaginations of of what the end of war. Means and this thing about militias is so important because the the Fiume story is most famous, and I'm sure many people listening right now have never heard of it. It's very very famous because it's used in many histories to help explain why um, the experience of soldiers during World War One. The you know to use uh, um, what's his name. Ah. The war that never ended. Uh, he I edited your book. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah but, sorry. Uh, the the why why did the war not end? and part of the answer is because the experience of the war never got resolved for the men who fought and the, what the, the peace they were given was not what they fought for right so we have this vision of the shock troops and the militias and these men with 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 arms as you describe also in your book who who are in a vacuum and start deciding to make their own peace the way they wanted and the fume story is Added to that list because of this figure of of Gabriele D'Annunzio, this very famous poet soldier who came to the town of Fiume with 200 or 300, uh, you know, veteran shock troop people, this kind of people, militia. And then hundreds more joined him. So the story fits so nicely with actually your history, right? Of these men with arms who are are dissatisfied by the complete corruption of their state and everything is chaos and no one knows where the rules are anymore and everyone feels cheated and no one trusts anyone. And then these men, the militia men, the shock troops, the, the Freikorps, the whatever, you, the death armies come and they try and make their order based on this military experience. So Fiume sounds perfect. It just was all a lie. And so what? why did anyone believe it? Because it was a play for the media. And so the Fiume story story in some ways is a shadow play that that maps up perfectly with all the stories that are much more real, that are happening in the Baltics, that are happening in Ukraine, that are happening um, all over the place, and and so this weird story works precisely because of an imagination that is almost, you know, maybe not global, but it is trans transcontinental, um, and and it and it and it is what power and political imagination is about. So even though Fiume is a very different experience than the Bloodlands, what people understand as dangerous is born there. Is born by those visions of rape and fire and mayhem, and I think that the reason the Fumé crisis lasted so long was internet. First, it was Europe; it was west Westernish Europe, and it was an important port. But this fear of that violence that created this standstill. I don't know if I made myself clear.
0: No, for sure. And and you know, it's it, one of the really great parts of your book. I think is describing how actually even the denunzio occupation of the of the city uh, where you can see why it has become sort of one of the origin myths of fascism and and is linked to sort of fascist movements in terms of the charismatic and violent and Dictatorial means all these sorts of things that that we know. You have this great scene of him sort of, you know, daring them to shoot him. Uh, you know, I like it's sort of, it it's sort of, you know, easily. It, you can see why this becomes part of the of the story of fascism. But at the same time, um, maybe you can discuss a little bit more. It is also a place where um, women are voting. It's also a place where it sounds you liken it to las vegas like it's where italians go to get divorced uh you know it's it has this sort of um this this lived history and and again moving away from nationalist rhetoric and these origin stories and just saying how is it that people are living here what does that tell us and i think that's one of the real contributions of your book is to say actually you know this episode it could have ended a a lot of different ways it didn't have to end with mussolini like this story um uh, it does end with mussolini and i'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that too. And, and even more broadly by the end of our conversation, thinking about what, what these mean today, as you know, as we, you know, I already mentioned about ways sort of, I'm thinking about decolonization in different ways today, but, um, as you think about sort of right-wing movements and authoritarian right-wing movements and, and fascism and proto-fascism. Um, so that's a lot. So take, that's take a, lot. I,
1: I don't know. I always feel like, especially with the 20th century and, um, and media and typewriters and a bureaucratized state with reports all the time and, uh, you know, telegrams and spies that are also sending their things and army uh, in, in, uh, information officers who I feel like we are getting information about the, the 20th century that is things getting explained that that. The authors of which are trying to make sense to who's supposed to receive that information, and so, I'd, to, to make to be a little clear, I feel like the history of uh, World War One, post World War One, and up until the 30s uh, is usually to try and make sense of the 30s, at least for uh, for for modern European history. And so the, the, the stories that we've been told are not lies. They are based on, on experiences. They are based on, uh, on paper trails. They are based on very smart people analyzing very a lot of information. But they're trying to answer a question about why did authoritarianism and nationalism seem like the best ways for the future in the 1930s. And so, looking at World War One and the immediate post-war, and finding these examples of some guy saying uh, the only the only way for peace is for Italy to get bigger, uh, starts making a lot of sense when you look at Italy entering World War Two and the only way to have peace is for us to get bigger. So you, you see this 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 uh, this very reassuring question answer, <laughs> and uh, when I look at the past, any part of the past, I always see chaos and and trying to figure out what is going on here. You know, I, I just, I, whenever things seem so clear, I get really nervous. And so the book was really about, well, what if we don't take that answer and we look at everything that we're not supposed to be looking at, would it look the same? And guess what? It doesn't. Um, I, I found the answer I was looking for, I'm just, I'm joking, but I I just thought, what if you take a state, not a city, what if you take a state, the smallest state in the world and you, and you, and you do a, like, um, a CSI Miami, you know, you, you take it to the autopsy and you just go, okay, how does this work? This state of 50,000 people, how does it work? And you don't go, well, everyone cared. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, what you found or what I found, and I think, I mean, I, I did a lot of research. I, I kind of believe what I found uh, is that people were f- figuring it out. <laughs> uh, uh, when I was reading your book, I was trying to think when, if, if what I did was doable and, in, in your story. And I, I think that it's not. I mean, I'm not sure, but partially because there is a big state. Right. So so you can't you can't take a corpse and and autopsy it the same way because they don't they had a lot more. They were answering their own questions in Fume. They were a mini state. So you could autopsy a mini state. You can't autopsy Riga like that because Riga is not. It, it doesn't have control. It, it has as you described that you have local forces trying to solve problems, these technocrats that you're that you're describing. And I, I found that really fascinating. I was trying to like think, ah, this is this is what's happening in Pume too. These technocrats are 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 are, are, ma- are making everything work under the media surface. But the difference is is that they don't have to work with against the Duma or against the Tsar or against the military. They they Fiume got a kind of, they they got kind of put on pause for military because of the inter-allied occupation and then because of Danuncio. And so they got to just be technocrats um, without without outside interference to a certain extent. Um, But one way or the other, I do think in many parts of Europe, there was uh, much more of my story than has been told. And I do think, especially before the states were formed, so before 1924, if you looked in most of the successor states, you would find similar stories. If you dissected Poland, which is a mess, you would find people trying to figure out how to make it work. And what we have mostly about Poland right now is about nationalism and militarism, and not about how to make it work. There, there is new work coming out now that is doing that. I mean, uh Keeley is, is doing amazing work on this. And uh, Catherine uh, Chancha, Sianza, I don't know how to pronounce her name, is doing this. And Zachary Mazur is doing this. But up until this point, it has been about nationalism and violence. And uh, so I, I thought of the book as kind of a, let's look at the successor states before they become states.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's really important to have those... Um... know to have that ability to sort of look at a at, at a close level and and obviously it's impossible to do that sort of on sort of on a broad russian imperial scale but you know one of the things that that i tried to do in the book was to incorporate at least a little bit of that i mean you mentioned riga and i did a little bit um i was especially interested in what happens in in cities and towns near the front line that was where the sort of book project started was as a I was going to write like a daily uh, uh, history of daily life on frontline zones, and then it, it, you know, transformed into something different over time. But, um, you know, when you do look, when you go into archives in Riga, or when you go into, you know, archives in Kiev, and you know, Kiev was obviously further from the front line than, than Riga was. Riga was right on the front line um, for for quite some time. Um, but then you do start to get some of these stories. Uh, and and I think it does does more than just add color. That is to say, I don't think it's just a it's, it's not just sort of a writerly strategy to sort of try to get people um, uh, involved in these individual stories. I, I do think that it 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 adds. Exactly what you're talking about, right? Which is to say that, um, you know, how how are people figuring this out? What kinds of, of mechanisms are they using? And and you know, what what are they you know concerned about? When you read all these letters, when you read all these police reports, and and you recognize that you you know the main thing that people are talking about at a certain point is maybe inflation, right? Which is something that doesn't get talked a lot about, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, in 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 a lot of accounts. Um, or they're really concerned about the fact that that the cops can't control the soldiers and. And um, and that's also something that's um, you know that's that's a very very pressing interest, but also like tying into bigger things, whether it's you know in in Riga the sort of the position of Germans in the Russian Empire or, or whatever. So you know I think those are really um, I think those are, are 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 really important, and I think that's something you, you do exceptionally well in the book, which is to have these individual stories um that are linked to that to arguments you're making and so you still get a sort of a sense of the people involved while still seeing how sort of they're they're playing into the larger larger arguments that you're making uh
1: the the saddest thing i mean rereading your book the anti-semitism is just i mean you know it you've read about it you've heard it a thousand times i i can't imagine how many times I've cried over Brody? I mean, I, I I knew it, but rereading it again and thinking about my my book the whole time because that's what I did when I reread your book is I was thinking about my book and going, okay, how are they similar? How are they different? How is, and the anti semitism is just the biggest difference. It's not the anti-Germanism. There's all this, you know, blaming the Slavs or blaming the Germans or blaming the Italians. That 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 stuff and it sometimes it could get very emotional and sometimes it could get violent. But the anti-Semitism is the the the, the thing that I just don't see at all. I'm sure that people were anti Semitic and I found it a little bit in the archives, but not like this. It is so different.
0: Uh, Yeah. And this is in part a reflection of, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to describe in the book, too, which is the way that Russian governance bifurcates along civilian and military lines. You have this huge zone of military occupation that the army is running under martial law and then put under control of of not only anti-semitic generals but ones with ambitious sort of modern plans for for dealing with what what they they they're calling the you know the Jewish problem right and and going beyond you know um you know this is something I talk to my classes a lot about right which is you know many of them have heard of the pogroms which of course were horrible incidents in the late 19th and early 20th century in the Russian empire that were you know uh killing dozens of people uh displacing hundreds leading to a lot of property damage uh, but then when you start to see the scales of what's happening in 1914 okay we're not talking about dozens anymore now we're talking about hundreds of people being lynched thousands of them being deported and then ratcheting up through the great retreat in 1915 and then culminating in the in the largest sort of uh, anti-jewish terror campaign which is in 1919 in ukraine led by white forces and and you know you see that that, that just flowering it's, it's not really anti semitism It's uh, not, or I should. It's not just anti-Semitism. It's the it's the marriage of that anti-Semitism with these with these massive um, coercive and political instruments, and and that is it is. It's it's um it, it these are horrifying horrifying stories.
1: Yeah, especially because there's been a lot of work on Galician refugees <laughs> in the Habsburg Empire and how um they they are used as the excuse for uh for. Trying to kick Jews out of citizenship rights in the successor states because of these refugees, these Galician refugees, um, and there's a lot of really wonderful new work that's being done about the um, the displaced person camps during World War One for the Galician refugees in the in the Habsburg lands, and so and I've been reading all that stuff now because it's all so fascinating and and so important for thinking about the successor states. But then rereading your book. I cannot help but think about these Galician refugees of how they are just getting screwed every which way, I mean, which we know. But it's only when you when you read back and forth between both empires that you see that they're getting in different ways, not annihilation. Uh, uh, you, you know, they're getting uh, disenfranchised in, in in the worlds I'm studying, but in the rereading your world, it was just like, oh my gosh. Uh so depressing
0: yeah and you know it's <laughs> you know when when i first started working on this project there was a uh, there was a, a history of the war by a very famous military historian that that said that world war one was a what he called a curiously civilized war uh yeah, you read and, you
1: know,
0: it's and there was this notion of it right and um you know it uh uh, because these these stories and, and again, this is like there's so many great scholars that have been working on this over the last 20 years, uh, 30 years, because there had been sort of a a mini hiatus of sorts. There had been a um, sort of a, a revival in the mid 70s at one point. But, um, you know, it, it really has has transformed the way I think that that people think about World War One and, and 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 the revolution and the Civil War um, that. uh you know, that I think is important to um uh, to to broader understandings of warfare, certainly of of, of European and and Eurasian history.
2: Uh, and
1: I also think th- it, it makes this whole the exceptionalism of the Armenian genocide. Uh, you know it's so important for bringing the Ottoman Empire back in too. So by looking at the Habsburg and 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 Russian empires' experience during World War One on their on their joint front, and as you do, bringing in the Ottomans fronts as well, you start seeing that the Armenian genocide is part of all the story. You know, I'm just replicating things that other people already said, but uh, I I, I want to add one more thing is I've actually had an easier time thinking about what my book means with post-Ottoman situations because the Ottoman Empire had many more autonomy uh, autonomous provinces, aut- autonomous cities, uh, and so, uh, and all of them were functioning in this empire with kind of different tax rules and different citizenship rules, and and all sorts of that. So it made, um, it few may it doesn't feel as crazy. And when I was, uh, what I was wondering partially because you know I just don't know how you know, and you do say that there's there's no one Russian empire, but how much is autonomy? oftentimes I've noticed in your book, you talk about people talk about autonomy because they're not ready to talk about independence yet. And and I was wondering, is that because autonomy isn't really a stable thing in the Russian Empire? Uh,
0: yeah, this, you know, I think it's because and again, this corresponds to a great degree with what happens in other decolonizing um circumstances you know if you read some of the work of of Fred Cooper in Africa on Africans and, and so forth like federalism is a is a really important stage for people to think through what it might mean to be you know, a, um, a multi-ethnic state without, you know, in, in imperial coercion or imperial subjugation. Um, and you know, part of this, I think, is is just um, a little bit of political inertia. Some of it is um, not wanting to, you know, sort of declare independence, which is a very dramatic step in very uncertain times. But I think there there are these 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 legacies. People do think through them, and it, and it relates almost, you know, relates to what you're discussing, in few may also right that. Sometimes people are like, "Well, do we want to be a small part of the world, or, or a constituent part of a big power?" Um, that the answer to that question isn't obvious. In particular, for people who are already in the realms of power, right? Federalism is an elite discussion um, for, for the most part. And so, um, as, as people think through, right you, after the February Revolution, people are like, "Okay, we have to figure out what's going to happen. At some point, we'll have this constituent assembly." You know, that's one of the things that's that's that that's on the table. And federalism is it becomes exciting for people, right? And, um, and all sorts of political actors start to use the language and try to uh, tweak it in their own way. And, you know, notably, the Bolsheviks do too, right? I mean, the Russian Federation is the, is the Russian Federation for, for, for a reason, right? That and, and obviously, there's a long history of sort of um, Marxist discussions of, of, of federalism and, and, and those sorts of things too. So, you know, I, I think it's just, it's, it's an organic part of many decolonizing moments. And, you know, I, I focused in particular on Ukraine and, and, in retrospect, what seems to be a reluctance to declare independence, they wait very, very late, you know, even as everything is falling apart around them, they're like, well, we want to part in the new empire. And it's really only on the eve of Brest La that They're like, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to declare, we're going to declare.
1: When when I was writing the book, um, I was very fortunate to have gotten a fellowship at the American Academy in Rome. And um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to write the hardest chapter first, I had already decided I was going to write about the pillars of the state. Like using a Charles Charles Tilly thing, and um, and do you know law, citizenship, money. So you know, I don't know much about money. So I was, I was like, okay, well, I'll do money first. And it was only in doing trying to understand currencies and inflations that I I understood the fear of independence. Uh, in the other ones, I saw the opportunities of autonomy. But it was it was. Tr- in their complete incapability to control the money supply that you, that, that these arguments about, we don't want to be alone (laughs) it's so much. I mean, it was so strong. And uh, I I think that part of the problem is that our, as historians, many of us are, you know, we do economic history, we do cultural history, we do diplomatic history, we do this. And, uh, and human beings don't live that way right? They live, they don't, I'm a cultural human. (laughs) No, we all are worried about our pensions (laughs) Um, or if you're, or how to get one, you know? Uh, So, so what I loved about your book was that you, I felt in that way, we were doing the same thing is you were, you were really trying to figure out how to make the experience of the breakdown, and you say this very clearly in the, throughout the book, be one where you, where the question of state failure becomes something not just for politicians. And, and I think that I tried to do that too. And in that way, looking at our books together makes a lot of sense. Um, but the inflation uh, in your story feels even more out of control because you're not looking at just one place. So how did you...
0: i i did not approach it as as an economist uh you know i did not look for large level data anything like that i i was only looking at people's reported experiences about inflation which were plenty as i said like plenty of letters uh plenty of discussions in cadet party congresses plenty of discussions in the tsarist government um it was obvious to everybody and then and then basically just using I'll be honest, just econ one hundred and one, right? Like, I mean, the the thing that I'm trying to uh, undermine there is this that tsarist government's idea, which still persists actually in in some accounts of the war, which is that inflation was the result of speculation, um, right. which the military took to be yeah. you know Jewish speculation. So it's a part right. of an anti-Semitic campaign. But just more generally, that like, inflation happens when when people that are selling you stuff raise their prices too much, right? So like blaming um, those those people, and and all I try to do is just basic econ one hundred and one to say, look, when yeah. you know when you have um, you know uh, you know a collapse of supply and an increase of demand and you start attacking the people that are warehousing stuff, um, you're, you're going to have prices rise a- at the same time, of course, that you have a monetary policy that is flooding, you know, flooding the zone with new rubles because they can't finance the war um, effectively in you know, a- any other way. So it just seemed, it didn't seem like a big, you know, so I, I didn't, I honestly, I mean, I thought, uh, some about it, but I,
1: I was just thinking about it the whole time. There was this one section where you were talking about like, uh, the, the soldiers that are getting moved into the, the Persian uh, front. And, you know, then they're getting moved back here and they're getting moved back there. And I was thinking, are they getting paid or is their money going to their home? Or, I mean, so if you're a moving subject of the Russian empire and, and it's all such a different situation about, about provisions and, and, you know, what you're living off of or how you're getting food or, what you're going to, I don't know. I was just like, Oh my God, this is, I can't even imagine what this must've been like yeah. on the ground. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. well, I mean, let's not even go there, but all right. <laughs> it was, it was um, it's, it's, it's maybe, I don't know if you feel your book to me felt like an, uh, an invitation for us all to think about what it means to live it i mm-hmm. um, not a and I've solved all the problems and you yeah. never have to study any of this again. I don't know. How did you feel writing it?
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like I said, it sort of began as sort of thinking about how people live through through these experiences. and And I think, again, to sort of circle back to what we sort of talked about at the beginning, you know, I think the real similarity between our works is that they're anti-teleological. And so those teleologies can be um, sort of the road to communism, but they, they also can be the road to nationalism. Uh, right. And, and actually for both of us, I think, you know, we're, you know, uh, you know, that's, 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 that's kind of what um, you know, what, what we're looking at. Cause there is this conflict between again, these big political plans that are being discussed over this time period. And then what, what most people are are dealing with, which is trying to survive uh, economically, physically, um, you know, in all these other ways. And those conditions of life are changing so quickly that they're concerned with that. But that doesn't mean that they are therefore apolitical. <laughs> Indeed, right. they become more yeah. intensely political as a result of this. But it does mean that those political, um, uh, you know, attitudes and behaviors are are then changing. And I think that's the that's the only way you can explain for me the success of the Bolsheviks as a small minority party in 1917. Um, uh, you know, being able to to seize power and then and then be able to hold it over the course of the civil war. Things change once you get into state building and everything else, and the collapse of anti-Bolshevik opposition. But but you know the the idea that in February 1917, you know the the odds were definitely against the Bolsheviks then, and and um and the story of their success isn't just it certainly isn't in my mind, the inevitability of communist, uh, you know, success. And it's certain for me, it's also not, you know, that, um, even though Lenin was a very talented politician, it wasn't sort of, um, you know, sort of, um, unprecedented brilliance on the part of, of Bolshevik politicians. It's the mix of their message with the, with the lived experience of, of a lot of people at, at the same time that other Imperial politicians are losing their grasp of the situation, losing their ability to think through it. So they're just, you know they're more flexible. When we think about what's happening in the summer of 1917, when all this Ukrainian political imagination is happening, the f- the complete failure of Russian liberals to to uh, to understand what's happening and to sympathize with it, even people who had been known for sort of being good on nationality policy, it is it's it's so striking and and so so depressing. They deserve to lose their jobs. You know, <laughs> they, they they didn't deserve to, to to lead the country. Not 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 necessarily that the Bolsheviks deserved anything, but but they at least had a better Theory of the case by, 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 by the end of the year.
1: Can I read something that I really loved? Um, so this is a quote that you have from an a article in 1916 about the future, and it, and it, they, It says, there's no movement without an obstacle, no occurrence without complicating questions. Russian life resembles those small billiard games called Chinese for some reason, where the ball rolls along an inclined plane, running every second into a multiple of little studs, which deflected away from its goal, stopping it for several moments as if it had suddenly gotten past all the difficulties, but only at the last moment to be thrown somewhere unexpected and to land someplace completely different than where it was expected (laughs) to land. When I read that, I was like, wow, this is like a theory of history. But, but I also was thinking that the, the people in my book really were afraid of that. They didn't like the idea of not knowing where they would get, they would land. They felt like they were that ball <laughs> and, they, and that they're getting pushed all around. But this idea of figuring out where to land was absolutely of number one importance. And I and. The difference um, also as a historian is I didn't have to end up in a state because all the states that this place ended up in have dissolved in the meantime. The Habsburg Empire, gone. <laughs> the Kingdom of Italy, gone. Uh, Yugoslavia, gone. <laughs> you know, now it's in Croatia. Come on, Croatia, I'm rooting for you. But, but, uh, but it, I, I got to write a history that didn't have to explain the state it's in. And I was wondering if that felt different for you because you you actually end your story with the state that's getting made out of this.
2: Uh, well, uh, Josh and Dominique, uh, that was riveting. And I can see the hardest part of being host of this podcast is going to be <laughs> staying quiet. Uh, <laughs> but uh, on behalf of the editors of Critica, I, I want to thank Dominique Kirchner-Ryle and Joshua Sanborn for their conversation today. Uh, you can find the titles to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next History X Silo conversation, uh, which will feature Anna Vandergoltz of Georgetown University and Juliana First of the Center for Contemporary History in Potsdam. Thank you to both of you uh, and goodbye.